This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hi, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Afan Shukat. He's a mathematical epidemiologist and modeling postdoctoral associate at the Centers for Disease Modeling and Analysis at Yale University. We'll be discussing the cost-effectiveness of providing a vaccine to prevent Zika in the Americas. Welcome, Dr. Shukat. Hi, thanks for having me. Zika virus started making international headlines in 2016. Tell us a bit about this and uh, what you've learned about it since. Um, well, Zika, Zika infection is really caused by a virus which is uh, mainly transmitted by uh, mosquitoes, uh, particularly the, the Aedes uh, mosquito family. Um, an infection uh, from Zika mostly just causes Zika fever, which may not have any symptoms or may have symptoms that are relatively mild. But uh, given the recent outbreaks, we've, we've learned that um, Zika infection can actually cause neurological abnormalities uh, in infants where the mother had been infect, infected with Zika. So, for example, microcephaly um, was, was a big uh, outcome of Zika infection. Um, it, it, was, it was also linked to miscarriages and, and stillbirths and, and, and a lot of the affected pregnancies as well. Uh, we also have learned that the virus has been linked to Guillain-Barre syndrome in adults, which is uh, inflammatory autoimmune disorder and affects the nervous system. Um, GBS, this, uh, this occurs at a very low frequency, you know, almost two cases per 100,000 individuals. But because of uh, these outbreaks, the World Health Organization showed a 19% increase, almost a 20% increase in GBS cases uh, in Brazil uh, during 2015. So there were, there's also evidence that Zika can have human-to-human -human transmission. It's not just mosquitoes. Um, the virus can spread through sexual interaction uh, through infected males and females and can also have vertical transmission from mother uh, to child. We're still learning um, quite a bit more about it. We don't know how uh, the specific pathology of the of the virus works across different ages, across different sexes and, and medical conditions. Um, so there's still a lot of unanswered questions right now. Explain what the economic burden of Zika is. Where do most of the costs come from? So the estimated economic burden uh, is really is driven by four considerations, right? The first one is just the direct medical cost of detecting and diagnosing and treating the disease, including the, you know, the patient follow-up. For the 2015-2017 outbreak in, in the Southern Americas, I think it was estimated around 0 0.9 to $3.3 .3 billion for uh, the, the medical costs only, depending on, depending on the country. Um, the second consideration is just lost time due to work, right? So it's estimated that if you are a symptomatic individual, someone who's showing symptoms, um, they'll take an average of five to six days off work, which accounts to lost wages and, and lost uh, revenue and, and stuff like that. This third consideration is the big one. It's the long-term cost associated with microcephaly um, and other brain abnormalities, right? The, the medical cost and the indirect cost. 
So, and when I say indirect costs, these could be costs related to um, the care of children with microcephaly. So many parents, often the mothers, will have to either withdraw from the labor force or just not enter the labor force uh, simply to care for for a child with microcephaly. Um, and the last consideration is just the overall impact in the economy, uh, something called avoidance behavior where um, a country may have lost revenue uh, due to decreased tourism, for example. And so uh, for the 2015-2017 outbreaks, there was an assessment done by the United Nations Development Program, um, and overall they estimated you know, the total economic burden to be somewhere between 7 to $18 billion for short-term costs and, and $3.2 to $39 billion uh, for long-term costs. And, and, and for the outbreaks that happened between 2015 and 2017. The WHO and the United Nations Children's Fund laid out a plan for the implementation of a Zika vaccine. What does this plan say? Um, so in, 20, in February 2016, in the midst of the, the outbreaks and the increasing cases of microcephaly, uh, the World Health Organization they declared a public health emergency of international concern and called on you know globally uh, called on global research efforts to to control and mitigate the the epidemic and then following that year in 2017 they laid out a roadmap to facilitate the development of vaccine candidates and and provided a framework for this implementation so one of their strategies was was something called the outbreak response where in the context of an ongoing epidemic or an imminent outbreak uh, they suggested or they recommended a mass vaccination campaign of women of reproductive age, including pregnant women. And they, they would be the priority for vaccine. And the main objective of the strategy was, uh, was to prevent the prenatal Zika infections uh, leading to microcephaly. And this was really the strategy that we studied in our, in our model as well. Uh, they had a second strategy, which was just a routine um, a, a universal vaccination campaign of the general population. Um, that strategy really establishes a population immunity, um, but there really isn't any evidence right now to say whether Zika is endemic in countries. Mostly it's just large outbreaks happen and they, they fizzle away. So, you know, to, it's important to protect the, the women of reproductive age. What countries or regions were being most affected by Zika at the end of 2019? Um, so after the large outbreaks uh, from 2015 to 2017, um, these recent years have been relatively quiet in terms of Zika. Um, there are still a few countries that have a documented presence of Zika, mainly countries in Latin South America. There are a few countries in Africa. Uh, a few countries in Southeast Asia, uh, including Pakistan and India. Uh, in the U.S., uh, in 2016, there were over 41,000 cases. Um, then we had around 1,200 cases in 2017, and in 2018, there was only 220 cases. Um, but, you know, that being said, where countries where the itis mosquitoes are, are widespread and active, these countries are always at risk of an imminent outbreak if the population isn't sufficiently covered. 
Your study used a model system to simulate different possible patterns of Zika infection. How does a model like this work? So we use something called an agent-based model, which is a computational methodology where you have uh, virtual agents interacting together in a virtual world to produce the dynamics of, of the system that we're trying to study. Um, uh, and, and there's lots of models, there's lots of computational models out there, but the fundamental property in agent-based model is that these agents are all independent and have their own set of properties and behaviors, and they all work together to produce the dynamics. So in our model, the agents in, in an agent-based model were the humans and the mosquitoes interacting together to, to produce the dynamics of Zika infection. And when I say they were independent, I, may, I mean like each human was, was such that they were given an age, they were given a sex at the start of the, the model simulations. Uh, we were easily able to classify pregnant and non-pregnant women. Uh, we were able to implement a realistic uh, sexual interaction and virus and transmission. Uh, we considered a realistic uh, biting process of mosquitoes and how even seasonality affects the mosquito's lifespan. And so that's where really the advantage of using an agent-based model comes in. It's the ability to incorporate uh, arbitrary level of detail. Um, and of course, the more details you add, the more complex and computationally intensive the model becomes. So, so as a model modeler, I have to find that balance where I'm implementing uh, sufficient detail of, of what I'm trying to study, but also trying to keep it relatively uh, simple, which, uh, which in our Zika model was relatively complex, but it actually was controlled enough and it was simple enough that we were able to get good results out of it. Um, and this, this type of methodology, agent-based modeling, is becoming more and more common in all fields of science. Uh, just because of enormous growth in computer power over the last decade, so we are able to incorporate large amounts of quantitative data. Uh, okay, so tell us about the scenarios you ran. We implemented uh, vaccination into our model, which was very similar to what the uh, World Health Organization recommended in their in their plan in their roadmap. And so the way we did this was that at the start of our simulations, we said, okay. 60% of all women of reproductive age were vaccinated. And then for pregnant women, we said 80% of all pregnant women at the start of simulations uh, would be vaccinated, and that remained throughout the simulation. And for everyone else, you know, males and women of non-reproductive age, we said about 10% of them would be vaccinated. And then we let the model run for one year, uh, doing its thing, uh, capturing the results at the end, which we then analyzed and used in a, in a cost-effective analysis. And this latter analysis, the cost-effectiveness part of it, uh, we considered both the short and the long-term costs specific to each country. So when I say short-term costs, these were physician visits, diagnostic tests, and, and hospitalization. Um, and the long-term costs included costs for microcephaly. So we considered you know, hospitalization, treatment, and other factors that are associated with taking care of uh, microcephaly. Just to help our listeners kind of understand this this 
model running along for a year. Um, is, is this kind of like a computer game you just sort of set up and let it do its own thing? Yeah, that's, that's exactly how I would describe it. It's essentially a, a, a virtual uh, a virtual world where I set up my agents, my humans and, and mosquitoes, and I let them essentially uh, do their thing. They, they roam around this virtual world. The mosquitoes find humans to bite. They bite them. Maybe the disease gets transferred. Maybe it doesn't. Um, and so we run this for one year uh, just to kind of replicate a single outbreak, right? So an outbreak can really last for more than a year uh, because of seasonality. Uh, so we we ran our model for one year just to capture one outbreak uh, to see you know the magnitude of the outbreak and and what the total cost would be by the end. Wow, this is actually really interesting. Um, okay, so how did you choose what numbers to run in your model for things like risk of infection, survival rates, and so on? So these parameters of the model, like you said, the risk of infection, survival rate, uh, the incubation period of Zika, um, the total infectious period of Zika, where you know an individual may transmit disease, uh, most of these parameters were actually quantified in other studies and, and other relevant work on Zika. So that's where we, we got them. Um, and given that we used an agent-based model, we were easily able to incorporate all of this data that other other folks had had done. Um, there were some parameters that were that we were missing, but you know, given the similarities between Zika and, and dengue or other vector-borne or mosquito-borne diseases, uh, we were able to um, kind of guess or, or or estimate some other parameter values based on these other diseases. But, uh, you know, you have to be uh, careful here. Like, each parameter value uh, is, is a little bit uncertain, right? So, you know, when I say the total infectious, infectiousness period is 4.7 days, well, that's an average number. Not everyone is going to be sick for 4.7 days. But again, because our agent-based model works on an individual level, uh, we were able to sample this. You know, if someone did get sick, how long would they be sick for? Well, because everyone is independent, someone would be sick for two to three days, and someone could be sick for seven to eight days, which, because it's all random, on average, you'll come out to the number we're looking for. Okay, so you kind of already touched on this, but at the end of all of this, um, did you decide who would be vaccinated, just pregnant women or or everyone since Zika? Well... In a, in a perfect world, nearly everyone should be vaccinated, right? Um, uh, sufficiently high vaccine coverage would, would ensure really no endemic transmission of Zika and will prevent outbreaks. Um, in our model, like I said, we started off with vaccinating 60% of all women of reproductive age and 80% of all pregnant women. And, um, I mean, I think these were reasonable assumptions that we used and they kind of uh, they were they, they were they came from what the World Health Organization suggested. How much would it cost to vaccinate a person against Zika? Would the cost be the same in every country, or would it vary according to the countries? So, because there isn't any available or licensed vaccine on the market, you know the costs are really unknown. Um, it's unlikely that the cost would be the same in every country, and it really depends on the socioeconomic status of that country and, and how rich that country is, is in a sense. Um, in our study, what we did was we varied, we varied the price range 
in a range. I think it was from uh, from one dollar to a hundred dollars, uh, which was similar to vaccines for other other similar diseases. And then and then what we tried to do is we tried to find a minimal price under it would still be considered cost effective, which is a technical term, um, in each country in 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 the Latin Americas. And and I just. We're going to talk quite a bit here about um, vaccines now, but um, I just want to be very clear for people listening there, and you just said it, but I want to say it again, there is actually no real Zika vaccine yet, correct? Yes, there isn't anything available right now, but there are a few candidates that are under under clinical trial. Oh, okay. All right. Well, good. What's the difference between cost-saving and cost-effective? In your simulations, you found that whether a vaccine was cost-saving or cost-effective varied by countries. Yes. So these are uh, these are technical terms in, in health in the field of health economics. Um, just to you know make it easy, cost-saving generally refers to an intervention which provides more benefit and costs less than the status quo. So, of course, why wouldn't you do it, right? It, it provides more benefit and it costs less. So we, we consider that intervention to be cost-saving. But when an intervention really it produces more benefit but also costs more than the status quo, well, then policymakers have to decide whether to implement the intervention or not. So, you know, uh, let's say it costs X amount of dollars to, pre- to prevent one case of Zika. Well... Policymakers have a threshold value of willingness to pay value to compare that cost. So if it's going to cost me $10,000 to prevent one case of Zika, is that cost effectively? Am I willing to pay $10,000 to do it? And this threshold value, this willingness to pay, is substantially, is different in, in in every country, it depends on the context of the disease. It depends whether, you know, the, the different types of vaccine or whether it's a treatment, it's a new drug. Um, so the willingness to pay is a is a number that is somewhat subjective based on the country that you're you're dealing with or what the policymaker considers to be cost effective. The World Health Organization does suggest that an intervention could could be considered cost effective if it is. Uh, if if the cost to avert or to prevent an infection is less than the per capita GDP of that country. Now, that's a very standardized number, the per capita GDP, and it's not always the case then that the per capita GDP needs to be the threshold value, but that's what we used in our study. We wouldn't know what the, the threshold values or what the willingness to pay are for the different countries that we, we studied. Okay. So what kind of factors do affect the cost of a vaccination program? So the biggest cost component of, of developing a vaccine, which would be the, the research and development uh, of it, uh, but assuming that a vaccine is available, it's licensed, uh, factors like the number of doses, the efficacy of the vaccine, uh, the duration of immunity, is it temporary immunity, is it lifelong immunity, uh, safety and potential side effects, reactions, these are all very important factors to uh, consider, um, and they'll all affect the cost of, of the vaccination program. Another major factor is the logistics of administrating the vaccine, right? So you have to consider the healthcare center, the healthcare workers, 
um, the storage and the transportation of the vaccine. And even, you know, particular to Zika, because Zika has only had intermittent, intermittent outbreaks so far, uh, we really also need the ability to store the vaccine stockpiles for long periods of time. We don't know when the next outbreak would be. So here you have to consider cold chain storage and transportation, and which can significantly uh, increase the cost. It seems that the vaccine efficacy rate that you found could be as low as 60%. Is it worth getting vaccinated for such a low rate? So we don't actually know what the true efficacy of of the vaccine would be because there isn't a vaccine that's available right now. Uh, In our model, we considered a range of of the efficacy. We we said the the vaccine could be um, effective between 60 to 90%. And we got, and this is a reasonable number because, uh, you know, this is the efficacy of other vaccines uh, for similar diseases or for similar, uh, like dengue, for example. But just to answer your question, yes, it's absolutely worth getting vaccinated because other studies have shown that it can significantly reduce the risk of microcephaly. Our own study showed that I think, uh, I think we had over 80% reduction in microcephaly cases. And so this is substantial. A single averted case of microcephaly can have significant reduction in cost and, and the well-being of that family. Um, you know, so yes, it's, it's definitely worth getting a vaccine, even if it's 50 to 60 percent efficacy. So the efficacy, even if it's lower, the, the percentage of preventing microcephaly is higher? Yes, yes. It, it definitely prevents a lot of cases. Of microcephaly. Why should a government consider implementing a vaccination program, even if in some cases it might not necessarily save costs? Yeah, so in some cases this is true, right? It may not save costs. It might actually cost the government a lot of money to implement a vaccine program. But it's important to consider that, uh, you know, one, we're all connected at a global level, right? So preventing a case in one country may prevent an entire outbreak in another country because, you know, people travel. And, and that's how these large outbreaks in, in Southern America and in the U.S. even actually started because someone imported uh, the disease in. Yeah, so, so we have to consider the ethics of it, right? The, the, the quality of life for someone who's going through microcephaly or is suffering with microcephaly. Um, so it, even though it might cost more, it may be still worth it to to have a vaccination program. Another clarification here, and it's really not relevant to the Zika, but did you just say that there is a dengue vaccine? Yes, there is a dengue vaccine um, that was announced actually pretty recently, and, and it does exist, and it's licensed. Okay, well, that's good news. Do you know the efficacy of that one? I don't know the efficacy of that one. Okay. Um, are you optimistic about the future of Zika prevention, or do you think we might be at risk for another huge outbreak? There are a lot of countries that are suitable for the mosquito population that transmits uh, Zika. Uh, so a sizable portion of the world population remains at risk. Um, in the U.S. alone, 22 million people live in areas where the Aedes aegypti mosquito is active year-round. And so it does set the stage for possible outbreaks. Um, But based on our knowledge that we, 
you know, from our studies from 2015 to 2017, the outbreaks during that time, uh, we now have knowledge on how microcephaly works, how it gets transmitted. Uh, we've learned that Zika can also be transmitted sexually. And so I'm optimistic in the sense that we are definitely more prepared if another outbreak happens. Where are some of these areas where these 22 million people in the U.S. live? This would be in the southern area of U.S., uh, Florida, and, and the surrounding states. Like Louisiana, Texas? Right. Well, tell us about yourself, and what do you do, and what you love most about your job? Um, I recently got my Ph.D. in applied math uh, at York University in Toronto, and I'm currently a postdoc uh, research associate at Yale University. And my research really is about biomathematics and mathematical epidemiology, uh, but also health economics and public health uh, decision-making and policy. Um, what I like most about my job is just developing these models and, and the ability to integrate data from other studies um, and, and just to be able to answer questions that need answers. I don't um, have the mathematical chops to do what you do, but it absolutely sounds so fascinating. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Shukut. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the December 2019 article, Cost-Effectiveness of Prophylactic Zika Virus Vaccine in the Americas, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.